This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Have you ever wanted something so bad and, and, and known that it was so certain that, that even though you didn't have it yet, even though uh, Amazon hadn't delivered it yet, it felt like they already had? Like, like take for example, at Christmas. Uh, did any of you ever accidentally stumble across where your parents were hiding the presents before they were wrapped? And did any of you accidentally happen to see what you were getting for Christmas? Or maybe like me, you thought you were a super spy. You thought you were James Bond. You thought you were Ethan Hunt. And it had already been wrapped, but you knew that you could just peel the tape away just right and open it up and look inside to see what you're going to get. And then you could fold it back with the tape right in the perfect position and mom would never know. Some of you are sitting next to said mother, so I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. And all God's mother said, we already knew. But however you snuck a peek, like once you knew, you did like a tiger wood-sized fist bump, didn't you? And you yelled the loudest silent, yes, because you knew what you were getting. That very thing you circled on page 987 of the Sears Christmas catalog. Well, you couldn't play with it yet. You couldn't build that Lego set yet. You were so certain that it felt like you already had. And that joy, it, it carried you through waiting until Christmas morning when you could open that present for the second time. And it's that joy that comes with the certainty of something not yet arrived that we're going to experience this morning as we enter into this story of Mary visiting her relative Elizabeth here in Luke 1, continuing our journey through the Advent season, this season of longing and anticipation of, of light breaking through in the darkness the first season in the church's liturgical calendar, this lived remembrance of the life of Christ by the body of Christ. In this Advent, we are entering into the story of, of Israel's waiting for Christ to come in his first Advent here in the opening two chapters of Luke as we live out our own waiting for Christ to return in his second Advent, waiting for and longing for that good news of great joy that we celebrate at Christmas, rejoicing in good news this morning that is so certain it's as if it's already here. And so we're going to peek inside the package this morning, so to speak, as we enter into the story of these two incredible women and rejoice in the good news of these two incredible gifts that God has given to us in and through Christ. As Elizabeth rejoices in the good news of Christ's presence among us, and Mary rejoices in the good news of Christ's fulfillment of promise for us, right? The gifts of presence and promise. And so let's look at this first gift. The first gift, we rejoice in the gift of Christ's presence among us, right? That's good news. Christ's presence among us. And Luke, he begins in verse 39 saying, in those days, Mary, this, this, this young girl that we met last week, newly pregnant with her first child, a son. It says she arose and she went with haste. She was excited to go visit her auntie Elizabeth, now six months pregnant with her own son that she would name John. And Mary, she traveled some 60 uh, 80 miles on her own from her home in, in Nazareth in Galilee, down south, it says, into the hill country to a, to a town 
in Judah. And he says in verse 40, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth, her relative. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Now Luke, um, we know Luke to be an incredibly intelligent person. Paul refers to him as a, as a physician. Maybe, maybe not a medical doctor, but definitely someone with uh, some level of intelligence. And he, and he uses the same weird word here, baby, uh, brephos in Greek, for John, right, three months before his birth, that he's going to later use as the angels announce the birth of a baby, a brephos, to the shepherds, a, a baby that they would find wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And think about it it never would have occurred to Luke to differentiate between a baby three months before he was born or three hours after he was born. They were both living beings. They were both created in the image of God. They were both of equal value. And they were in that moment as, as Mary arrived and she greeted her, her relative, John leaped in his mother's womb. But why? why? Why that sudden response? Well, it says Elizabeth, in that moment, she was filled with the Holy Spirit herself. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. John recognized that he was in the presence of Christ, that the presence of Christ was among them there in his own mother's womb. And John, filled with the Holy Spirit himself, three months before he, he was born. This was the one that, that God told the prophet Malachi would prepare a way before the Lord. This was the one that the angel told his father, Zechariah, would make ready for the Lord of people prepared. This, this baby, before he was born, he was already preparing his mother for the coming Christ, the, the promised Messiah, pointing his mother to Jesus, her Savior, and then speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit herself, Elizabeth, she, she prophesies, responding to Mary, declaring to her, blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Blessed is this child you carry, blessed by God. You know what's interesting here is that um, no one told Elizabeth that Mary was pregnant. She wasn't even showing yet. And no one had definitely told her that she was pregnant with Messiah. I mean, um, Mary didn't send her a text message saying, hey, uh, Auntie E, I'm coming over. Is that okay? Uh, I'm, like, I'm only like three minutes away, so I hope it's okay. Uh, she, she didn't FaceTime with her to tell her about this incredible uh, experience that she had when she met the, the angel Gabriel. And uh, Instagram feels like it's been around forever, but it wasn't around then. Um, so it's not like she could just post a picture of her ultrasound picture to say, guess what? Expecting. None of that happened. No, this, this was divine revelation to Elizabeth from God through his spirit. And, and Elizabeth, she, she recognizes what a, what a blessing from God that this is both for Mary, uh, uniquely blessed by God, unlike any other woman, because of this intimate connection she had with the incarnate Christ within her, the child she was carrying. But not just for Mary, but also for herself. Blessed 
to be in their presence. And so Elizabeth, she asked Mary, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? The mother of my Lord. Words of scripture spoken by Elizabeth through the power of the Holy Spirit. Which is why the, the early church gave Mary the title Theotokos, which in, in Greek means one who gave birth to God. And like I realize that that, may, uh, that title may make some uneasy. Uh, it, it can start to feel like uh, we, we've crossed a line and, and careful, like we, we've begun to worship Mary. But yet just as the angel told John in Revelation 22, saying, don't, don't bow down and worship me. Because the angel, he declared, I'm just a fellow servant of the Lord like you, John. Right? We don't worship Mary because, as she said last week, she too is also a faithful servant of the Lord. Yet I do fear that we may have continued an overcorrection that has existed since the Reformation of devaluing Mary rather than revering her. Revering the one who was indeed blessed among women because of the child that she carried, because that child was blessed. And I think this is why church history matters to us. Because this title, Theotokos, right, it goes back to the 5th century, back to the early church. As leaders from churches throughout Europe and Africa and Asia, they, they gathered together to discuss this uh, belief that had begun spreading, a belief that separated the human and divine natures of Jesus into separate beings, denying the divine nature of the baby that Mary gave birth to, believing that this baby was merely human. This was a belief known as Nestorianism. And if you study church history, usually these heretical beliefs, unfortunately, get named by the person that's tagged with them. Even if he didn't believe it himself, he drew the short straw. Poor Nestorius. It's actually debated if he believed this or not, but he gets the name. But here's why this matters. Here why, here's why we need this little detour this morning. It's because who we believe Jesus to be has a significant theological impact on what we believe Jesus to have accomplished, doesn't it? Who we believe Jesus to be, is he human and divine or merely human, has a significant theological impact on what we believe Jesus to have accomplished. Because here's the thing. If Jesus, if this baby born at Christmas was just a human, if he had separated himself from his divinity, then during his incarnation, he would have been born into sin just like us. He would have died just like us. No resurrection, no defeat of death. And that means for us, no hope of eternal life, no resurrection of our own. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied because they pulled a fast one on us. This is why church history matters. This is why the church councils and creeds that they wrote matter to us because these creeds, these statements, they, they help shape and define our understanding of Scripture. That they shape our orthodox beliefs of, of who God is, of, of what God has done, and what it is God has promised to do. And so that is why in 451, the church 
gathered for the Council of Chalcedon, condemning this heresy of Nestorianism and writing what we now refer to as the Chalcedonian definition, declaring Jesus in the incarnation both fully and truly God and fully and truly man. And in the appendix of his new books, The Thrill of, of Orthodoxy, um, it's a beautiful book cover, isn't it? Like every time I show it, they're like, I don't know what that is, but it looks pretty. But uh, he writes, he, uh, he includes this in, his, in an appendix. And the Chalcedonian definition says, we then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach all to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect Godhead, and the same perfect in manhood, the same fully and truly God and the same fully and truly man of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead, and the same consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages from the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days the same for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the God-bearer Theotokos, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. They could have just said fully and truly God, fully and truly man. But that is who Mary gave birth to. This is why Elizabeth declared to Mary, blessed are you among women. This is why Elizabeth declared her to be the mother of my Lord. This is why the church declared Mary the Theotokos, because the baby she gave birth to was holy. He was divine. He was the son of God. He was God. He was the word who was in the beginning with God as God, wasn't he? That is who we believe Jesus to be. So who else could Mary have given birth to? But not only that, this is why John leaped in his mother's womb, because he knew he was in the presence of Christ. Mary says, or Elizabeth says in verse 44, for behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Right? This was not the potential for life leaping. This was life knit together by God, bearing the image of God, known by God, filled with the spirit of God as a child of God. Who, who, who leaped in his mother's womb, fully aware of his surroundings, and leaped with joy, rejoicing in the presence of Christ in his own mother's womb. And Elizabeth says in verse 45, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now Luke, he uses a different word for blessed here than he did earlier. It means something different than verse 42 where it was a, um, a blessing bestowed on her from God. Here he's speaking of, of a joy, of a, of a happiness, a, a sense of well-being that Mary experienced. It's the, it's the same word Jesus used in the Beatitudes. But what was it that made Mary blessed? It was her faith and trust in God, wasn't it? believing, as she said last week, that nothing will be impossible with God, that no word from God will ever fail, accepting God's will according to God's word, living out her faith and responding to the angel Gabriel, let it be to me according to your word, to your will in your way, God, your will on earth as it is in heaven. 
And what Mary is showing us here, what Elizabeth is declaring to us here, is that we miss out on the blessing of God working through you when you are not faithful to what God has spoken to you. Does that make sense? We miss out on the blessing of God working through us when we ignore what God has called us to do, when God calls us to zig and we zag. We miss out on the blessing of of sharing Christ with someone. We miss out on the blessing of loving one another, of loving our neighbor as ourselves. We miss out on the blessing of of emptying ourselves and meeting the needs of others, of welcoming others into our church and being the church, of the blessing of meeting someone new to you when we gather together, of of inviting them into your home, of, of sharing your story and entering into their story. We miss out on those blessings. But not just that, we miss out on the blessing of rejoicing in the presence of Christ. We, we miss out on that blessing by ourselves, the, the, the blessing of, a, of abiding in his presence in, in prayer and in word, in silence and solitude, in reflection and meditation. But we also miss out on rejoicing in the presence of Christ with each other. This gift that we get to open up and enjoy every Sunday as we gather together to sing and to read and to pray and to hear the good news of great joy of God's love for us, his children. To to hear of Christ coming to us as one of us to dwell among us and the promise that he will come again. But John and Elizabeth, they, they rejoiced in the good news of the coming Christ, the the gift of his presence among them. And Mary rejoiced as well. And Mary rejoiced by breaking out in song. Uh, I don't think, it's not like Hamilton, okay? (laughs) I don't think she actually sung the song. Like, I don't think we got a Rodgers and Hammerstein thing going on here. Um, Think of it more as a psalm than a song. But this song, we'll refer to it as the Magnificat which comes from the first word of the song in the Latin translation of the Vulgate, uh, which says, Magnificat anima mea dominum. My soul magnifies the Lord. And so as we enter into Mary's song here in the second part of this passage, we, we join her in rejoicing, not just in Christ's gift of his presence among us, but the gift of Christ's fulfillment of promise for us. The gift of of promise, rejoicing with certainty of what Christ will do as though he's already done it. Done it both for her and for others through his first advent in the first part of the song we'll see. And for all God's people and all God's creation upon his return in his second advent in the second part of the song. And so let's listen as Mary sings. I'm not going to sing it. Because it says, and Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my soul rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Mary here, she is is rejoicing. She's rejoicing with her entire being, body, soul, and spirit. She's overjoyed in in God, her deliverer. Uh, Eugene Peterson translates in the message, dancing the song of my Savior. So there's a little Rodgers and Hammerstein going on here. But her worship was so 
passionate because her reason for worshiping was so personal. Right? In spite of her humble, impoverished estate, God, the creator of the universe, he, he looked on her. He knew her. This, this nobody from nowhere. And what she's saying is that her smallness magnified God's greatness. She's acknowledging here her need for a savior. She's rejoicing in his coming to save her, rejoicing in her redemption, her liberation, her deliverance. She's rejoicing that God would do this even for little old her and that he was going to do it through the child that she carried. She goes on to say, For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, please don't hear Mary's song as arrogance. Um, because every word is saturated in humility. She's not saying that she is to be called blessed because of anything that she had done. No, but because of what God would do for her and through her. Blessed to receive this gift of salvation as a recipient of his mercy, this gift given not just to her, but to anyone that it says fears God. And she's not talking here of a, of a cowering fear. Uh, last night I was at a Christmas party, and it was a white elephant exchange. And um, these are typically interesting because you never know what they're going to open. And there were the typical gifts as we went along the way. And then somebody opened this little box. It was about this big. And they opened it. And then her face was like a face you'd never seen before. And inside that gift was a gerbil. You ever been to a white elephant exchange where somebody got a gerbil? No. And that gift got stolen, right? It got stolen by someone else who is like, I'm going to be auntie of the year, and I'm going to give that to my brother-in-law to give to their kid, and the brother-in-law is at the party as well. and like, huh? I say that because to me, a gerbil is just a colored mouse. It's a rat, and I am scared to death of rats, and so I'm like in the corner of the room last night, as far away from this rat as I can get. I'm cowering in fear, okay? So you got that image in your mind now, right? That's not what Mary's talking about. We go to lengths to help you see what she's not talking about sometimes, don't we? She's not talking about cowering in fear of someone wielding their strength and power over them for their own good. No, she's talking about this reverent worship of someone that will use their strength and power for them for their good. Right, Mary, she's rejoicing in God's strength and power. She goes on in the second part of this song then, in verse 51, to say, he has shown strength with his arm. He's already done this. This anthropomorphism, it's often attributed to um, God's display of his strength and power in liberating his people from an oppressive state of slavery in Egypt, to, the story of the Exodus, right? Leading them out of Egypt through the wilderness and into the land that he had promised to Abraham. But Mary's song is not historical. It's eschatological. She's 
not looking backward, she's looking forward. And while she sings in the past tense, her song is prophetic. Singing with such certainty of what God will do in fulfilling his promises to his people, it is as if they have already been fulfilled. Look at what she says in verse 51 to 53. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. She is singing of the liberation of God's people from the oppression that sin holds over our world, of the darkness that has shrouded our world, beginning, she says, with God scattering the proud, those who deny their need of God, deny their need of God to come to them, their need of God to save them. Those whose lack of love for God leads to a lack of love for others. Those who take from others rather than emptying of themselves for the well-being of others. Those who, who give no thought to the consequences of their thoughts and their words and their actions and their inactions of what that might have on the lives of others. But what she's saying here is that as God's kingdom breaks through as the light begins to shine in the darkness, the coming Christ, the promised Messiah, he, he, he's going to right all that's wrong. He's going to restore all that's broken, uh, reversing the effects of sin in our world. And she, she sings of two great reversals. First, she sings of, of Christ bringing about a social reversal, doesn't she? Bringing down the mighty oppressor from their their self-built thrones. Those who have abused their power that they wield over others. And exalting the oppressed. Raising up the impoverished. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, he, he said in a sermon on the third Sunday of Advent in 1933, preaching from this passage, he says, No one who holds power, dares to come near the manger. Herod didn't come near the manger, did he? Bonhoeffer goes on to say, for here thrones begin to sway. The powerful fall down and those who are high are brought low because God is here with the lowly. He is here with those of humble estate. He is here with us. But Christ won't just bring about social reversal. She also sings of how Christ will bring about material reversal. Taking from those who hoard their excess and sending the rich away empty, she sings, while filling the hungry, not just with leftovers and the basic things needed to survive, those things society has kept from them, but the good things to enjoy from God's very good creation. Mary's Magnificent is, as as Ronald Sider writes in his book, uh, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, a book that I'm currently reading. He writes, Mary's Magnificent is the most powerful statement of God's work to destroy evil social structures in the entire New Testament. And that is what makes the gospel such good news of great joy for so many Both the joy of salvation, right? That we are saved by grace through faith in Christ's atoning work on the cross, amen? We preach that every week. But also, not either or, but both and. 
Also the joy of God's liberation of those oppressed by others. Also justice for those abused by others. Also healing for those dealing with pain and illness. Also freedom from those dealing with with addiction and depression. Rejoicing alongside Mary. Rejoicing with that same hope and certainty. And that, that, that certainty in what God will do, fulfilling his promises through Christ, is founded on who God is and what God has already done. Mary, she goes on to sing, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned home. She returned home rejoicing in this certain gift of Christ's eventual fulfillment of promise with each and every step of those 80 miles home. Knowing that this was not anything new, but a continuation of God's mercy towards us, his beloved people. God has not changed. She's singing of the promised offspring, promised to to Abraham, the one through whom all God's people would be blessed, he said. Her own offspring, the son that she carried in her womb, who would later stand in a synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth on a Sabbath and open the scrolls of Isaiah and read aloud this good news of great joy that pointed to him, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so while we rightly rejoice in this individual aspect of the gospel, of this gift of our salvation through Christ, let's not miss the social aspect of the gospel that Mary sang of that Jesus himself spoke of, that the prophet Isaiah wrote of, good news that has given hope to so many. Good news that I know is giving hope to some of you here right now. Rejoicing. You know, when we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, we sing the word rejoice, and it sounds like a lament, doesn't it? It sounds incongruent. And yet I can't think of a more perfect song for the Advent season. In, in the pain and in the waiting and in the anticipation, in the suffering. It takes every ounce of energy to rejoice in that, doesn't it? Rejoicing not based on our circumstances, but based on our Christ. So we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. We rejoice Rejoicing with certainty, rejoicing with hope, rejoicing and knowing that things will not remain the way they are. Entering into Mary's song fills us with that hope that she had as we wait for Christ's promised return. Like Mary, rejoicing for a gift we have already gotten a sneak peek of, even if not fully received. Rejoicing in our Savior who has already come to redeem us, to rescue us, to restore us to right relationship with God. 
rejoicing in our Lord who today in this very moment reigns high above, sitting on his throne this very day. Rejoicing in our king who has promised to return and when he does, he will right all that's wrong, restore all that's broken. He will restore creation and resurrect our bodies. This great reversal that Mary sings of will take place and we rejoice with certainty in the good news of this gift of Christ's presence and promise, knowing that the one who has come will come again. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.